Let's take our Bibles and turn together to John chapter 14. Uh, this is uh, the second Sunday of Advent, first Sunday of December. And uh, in many parts of the world, uh, the church celebrates today the life and work of Nicholas. Nicholas, a theologian, uh, Saint Nicholas, uh, called in one part of the world, I think it's uh, Sweden, Sinterklaas, and known to us as Santa Claus. <clears throat> Nicholas was a great guy. We know about Nicholas that he used to put uh, coins in people's shoes if they left their shoes by the front door and as he was walking past he put coins in their shoes. He would give gifts to little children or to elderly people or to sick people. He was known for his generosity. <clears throat> but that's not why he's a saint. Why he's been sainted, which uh, he was a saint already because he belonged to the Lord Jesus, but why he was sainted by the church is because he was fierce in his orthodoxy, his belief in the Lord Jesus. At the time that Nicholas was around, uh, there had been a great influence by a man called Arius. Arius' views had virtually conquered throughout the Christian world. His view was that God, the Father, was so great, so holy, so distant, so supreme, that there is no way that God would ever, ever become a man. And so God created the Son, and the Son took on humanity. It's a bit more complex than that, but that's all I'm going to tell you about it this evening. But the point of the matter is that the Son is a created being, and God is separate from the Son. And Nicholas was enthusiastic and committed in his orthodoxy, and there is a legend that's going around that may not be quite a legend, that in one of the debates that went on, Nicholas had a go at Arius and gave him a punch just to uh, express the frustration he felt with, with uh, Arius's false doctrine. He was the kind of Jason Bourne of theologians. So I admire Nicholas very much for more the reasons than just the giving at Christmas. And that's a lead-in really to the passage of Scripture, believe it or not, that we've just read here this evening. Because in this passage, as we've been noticing in previous weeks, uh, Jesus is answering questions by his disciples. It's remarkable, actually, that his disciples are asking the kind of questions they're asking. In fact, in the narrative structure of John's gospel, there is a terrible similarity between Jesus and the Jews, that is the Jewish hierarchy on the one hand, and Jesus and his disciples on the other too many parallels, actually, very uncomfortable parallels. Uh, whereas, uh, for example, the Jews were excluded from seeing the glory of Jesus demonstrated at the cross, so were the disciples back in 1333, chapter 13, at verse 33. Little children, a little while, and I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. So like them, they cannot come where Jesus is going. Like them, they don't grasp what Jesus is teaching. Earlier on, he said to the Jews, that they, the Jews were asking him, we don't know where you came from. Now the disciples are saying, we don't know where you came from. 
And Jesus has to teach them the truth and say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And here in verse 7, he says to them, if you'd known me, you would have known my father also. The Jews don't know him. He says to his disciples, you don't know me either, apparently. You haven't twigged on to who I am either. And also, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to get rid of Jesus. There in the upper room, we find one of the, the disciples, one of Jesus' own people, who sets off himself to do the work of Satan and to bring about the murder of Jesus. One of the lessons of that is the church is often not far removed from the world. That in the church, you find things, you find behaviors, you find attitudes, you find ideas and teaching that is not too far removed from the world outside. The church is always in need of being reformed by the word of God. And so we find Jesus having to attack, to challenge the ideas in the church, just as Nicholas did in his day, as the ideas of Arius spread like, like some terrible deception over the church of God. People like Nicholas had to stand up. They had to give their lives, devote their lives to bringing people back to Scripture, back to the Word of God, so that they might re rediscover and reaffirm Orthodox Christian teaching. In fact, it was through the efforts of people like Nicholas that what we call Orthodox Christian teaching became Orthodox. It became accepted by the church. Well, I think that's behind some of what we're going to see here this evening. We begin with a serious request and move on to see a gracious answer and then a precious promise. Let's look at those three things. First of all, there's a serious request. Look at verse 8. Philip said to him, Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Like another man, Nicodemus, who had came to Jesus back in John 3 verse 2, one of the Sanhedrin. Philip wants Jesus to do something else other than what he's been doing. Lord, show us the Father. And that will be enough for us. Oh yes, do what we want you to do and that will be enough for us. There's a sense of, of arrogance, you know, where you're trying to make the point, we'd like you to do this and then we'll, we'll believe or we'll accept the point. And in many ways, uh, we've uh, we're discovering that even Jesus' disciples are struggling with the idea that Jesus, throughout his ministry, has been identifying himself with the God of Israel. Steeped in Judaism as they are, steeped in, steeped in their strong monotheism though they are, they are not yet ready to take the step of Trinitarian monotheism that they would later adopt. They still thought that there must be a fundamental gap between the Father and and the Son between God and Jesus. And in many ways that confirms for us, doesn't it, the historicity of this account. John is not drawing a picture here of himself and his fellow disciples who have got it right from the beginning. He's telling the narrative the way it happened. And the way it happened was that the very last night of Jesus' life before his crucifixion, in that very special teaching seminar that Jesus had with them in the upper room, even at that point, these men who had been with him all the time, 
and had seen his work and heard his words, these men are still not quite there yet. They're still finding their way. There is a note of authenticity, you see, in the record. And Philip is asking the question, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. What was Philip asking for? Well, he had been with Jesus throughout his public ministry. He'd seen some fantastic things. He'd seen changing the water into wine and the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water and the dead being raised and people being healed and, and all of that stuff. But like anybody who was aware of the scriptures of the Old Testament, he wanted something higher, something greater, something more godlike for Jesus to do. He wanted an immediate view of God, an immediate, tangible view of God. He knew from reading the scriptures that there is no higher experience, no greater good than seeing God. He rightly understood that. He rightly understood that there is nothing to compare with the revelation of the unimaginable splendor and transcendent glory of God. And he was asking Jesus for a theophany, an appearance of God, such as had been granted to Moses and Isaiah. Now you think for a moment what he was asking for. Remember Moses had been given a limited vision of God. Moses had come to God and said on one occasion, you remember, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord refused. Let me read it to you. The Lord said to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim to you my name, the Lord. Uppercase letters, the covenant name of God. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man cannot see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you can stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you will see my back but my face you will not see. Now maybe Philip had that kind of thing in mind. This view that Moses had of the back burner of the engine of the presence of the Lord. In other words, the kind of fifth remove part of the glory of God. That's all Moses got to see. And what... Uh, what Philip is asking for is something like that, something that Moses had perhaps. Or something like Isaiah had in the temple when he saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted. He wanted something else. He wanted something else. And we see here the intrinsic weakness of human flesh and our regular, our regular inability to grasp the things of God. Oh, well, that was a serious request that he made. And he gets a gracious answer from Jesus. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The statement is simplicity in itself. 
It leaves us with nowhere to go except to Jesus himself. When his opponents refused to recognize them, it was because they had not been taught of God. But these disciples were in a, a different place. They'd been with him all this time. They'd listened to him all this time. They'd seen what he'd been doing all this time. And yet even they are blind to his true identity. Apparently even hanging out with Jesus. Hanging out with Jesus' church. Hanging out in Bible studies does not guarantee that you get any more insight into who he truly is. Because sometimes you know our hearts are hard and our minds are dull and our wills are hesitant to obey. And Jesus says to him, Think about it for a moment. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If only you knew this, Philip. But Moses seeing the back burner of the glory of God was nothing to what you've seen. And the theophany that Isaiah had in the temple where he saw this magnificent vision of the Lord high and lifted up was nothing to what you've seen. What you've seen, Philip, is you have seen God with skin on. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And he goes on. It's a gracious answer, but he goes on to, ex to explain more. Look what he says. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Notice what he is claiming here. He is claiming absolute union and communion with the Father. He's saying that this unity and union are expressed in him and by his words and by his works that is the signs that he performs. He is claiming that, there, that you cannot put any distance in terms of nature and being between the Father and the Son. There's a distinction. It's a distinction of persons, but not of nature and being. I am in the Father. The Father is in me. There is a mutual indwelling between the Father indwelling the Son and the Son indwelling the Father. And you cannot separate. You cannot take them apart. You cannot put, make them, break them down into pieces. They are one. They are one. And that union and communion, he goes on to explain, can be seen in what they have seen. The words that I say to you, he goes on to say in the middle of verse 10, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. In other words, everything I do, he's doing. He's doing everything he's doing through what I'm doing. I'm doing them, he's doing them, we're doing them together. Everything we are doing together. What Jesus says, God says. What God does, Jesus does. And underlying this, there is this great statement of the equality, the equality between the Father and the Son. The nature of the Father and the Son, they share the same God nature. That was Arius' mistake. He didn't grasp what Jesus was teaching here. He didn't grasp that. Jesus shares the same nature as the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father, as he'll go on to say, 
are one. Now, this is absolutely vital. We get this into our heads as we come towards the Christmas season. It's at this season of the year that we sing these great hymns, clothed in flesh, the Godhead, see, hail, incarnate, that is embodied, deity. We have to get our theology right. This time of year, we, we actually, in our carols, express the highest theology that we can possibly do. At this time of year, it seems in our carols, we're, we're into theology proper. That is the, the doctrine of God. And so we are. So we are. Jesus says to these people, look, you look at what I did, what I said. And you see God at work in what I said and did. When I was healing the sick, when I was reaching out to the leper, when I was rebuking the religiously proud, when I was welcoming the children, when I was comforting the bereaved, when I was raising the dead, what did you hear? You heard the prophet in whose lips God puts his words. And speaking everything that the Father commands him. In his humanity, Jesus has taken on the position of subordination by his humanity for that period in order that he might be our representative man, our, the second Adam, and our true Israel. And in that position of voluntary submission to his Father for that period of his earthly incarnate life, for that period, he submitted to the authority of his father, and he does what the father tells him to do. What the father tells him to do is what the Godhead, as a unity, had decided before the foundation of the world. Look what he goes on to say. Believe me, he says. Believe me that I am in the father, and the father is in me. Again, he's underlining this mutual indwelling of the father and the son and the son and the father that you cannot distinguish in terms of being the father and the son. You can distinguish persons, but not the being, not the substance. And our Lord is challenging Philip and us this evening. He said, believe this, believe me, he's saying, believe me about my unique relationship to God. But he knows that they're weak, just as he knows we are weak. And so he goes on to say, or else, if you can't get the theology in your head, at least believe on account of the works themselves. Ask yourself the question about the signs that I have performed. Could anyone other than God do these things? Could anyone other than God speak to a storm and calm the sea. Could anyone other than God create something new from something water turn it into Chateauneuf-du-Pape, well-aged? Could, could you do that? Could anyone other than God do that? Let me just tell you, these guys who are on television doing their so-called miracles aren't doing any of this stuff. Only God can do this thing. And he's saying, believe me, believe me, even if, even if your faith is so weak, you have to believe me on the basis of what miracles I performed. Now here's something that we need to be clear about. Jesus most wants his people to believe him for his word's sake. 
Jesus most wants his people to believe him for his word's sake. That's what he means when he says, believe me. He means trust me. Believe what I've said is true. He wanted them and he wants us to simply believe him and to believe that what he says is true. If only we listen to him instead of wanting something more or something else. If only we listen to him, the uncertainties about matters in, in our lives would dissolve. We, if we only grasp the revelation that Jesus is the true and final revelation of the Father, then that would inculcate confidence into our hearts. Jesus was often appalled by his people's unwillingness to believe in his bare word. For their propensity to want more, more signs, more wonders before they would believe. And in the Gospels, Jesus is always rebuking people for not believing unless they were shown some signs. Sign faith is not strong faith. But Jesus is a gentle Savior. And so he says, if you can't believe me for my word's sake, which is what I'd like you to do, believe me for what I've done. And often Jesus in his teaching about these signs and wonders tells us, warns us, that the presence of signs and wonders is in itself no proof of reality without the word of God. False prophets, false apostles, performing signs and wonders lead people astray. On one occasion in Luke's gospel, he says this, If they will not listen to Moses and all the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So Jesus calls the signs mere works. That's the word he uses. For Jesus, these great miracles that he performed were no more than his daily work. Like putting out the trash or cleaning the kitchen sink. That was his daily work. That's just what he did. He did that. The signs and wonders are just so natural to him. But he's gracious to us, and he says to them, weak faith is better than no faith, so therefore if you can't take my word, please look at the signs and believe me for their sake. Back in chapter 10, he'd said this, if I'm, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Doing the works of God, demonstrate it. Jesus is arguing that in that mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son. And they say to us, Jesus is who he says he is. Now Jesus' challenge to believe in him is relevant today. When we fail to grasp who Jesus is, we leave ourselves exposed, wide open to false ideas and wrong doctrine. If we don't have clear ideas of who Jesus is, then we'll be sucked into the pluralism and error that there is all around us in our society. The great lie of Islam, Islam is a, is a Christian heresy, uh, influenced in its early days by, by, uh, by teachers, by Christian teachers who were not teaching Orthodox Christian truth. And look where that got, a whole lump of humanity into errors and lies and death and destruction. Jesus calls on us here back to himself. 
He says, you have to, you have to get your mind right about me. John Newton wrote a hymn. Uh, the, the author of Amazing Grace, he wrote another hymn called, What Think Ye of Christ? What Think Ye of Christ is the test. To try both your state and your scheme. That is where you're standing before God, your state before God, and what you think, your doctrine, your state and your scheme. You cannot be right in the rest until you think rightly of him. As Jesus appears to your view, as he is beloved or not, so God is disposed towards you, and mercy or wrath is your lot. We have to think rightly of Jesus. So here he is in this gracious answer, encouraging us back to the center. At this Christmas time, what we say and sing and think about Jesus is the most important thing of all. Well, the third part to the paragraph, the passage, is that there is a precious promise. Believe me that I'm in the Father, the Father is in me, or else believe an account of the works themselves. Now a formula that we find over and over again in Jesus' teaching. Truly, truly, this is the truth, this is the truth. Amen, amen. I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to my Father. That's a very key passage this precious promise needs to be understood often it's gone to taken out of its context and meant to mean that here we are and we should be doing greater miracles more spectacular works more supernatural paraphernalia than Jesus did and here's a simple fact of church history here is the absolute simple fact of church history that the only people who did signs and wonders like Jesus did in all of church history were the apostles. That's just the reality. People want to think otherwise, and just be, there are healings that take place. And all the, none of those things come anywhere near doing what Jesus did and what the apostles did. They healed at a word. They could go along a street, and people would be healed almost as the shadow fell upon them walking down the street. That's never happened anywhere else. That's why in the New Testament, the signs and wonders Jesus did are the marks of an apostle of Jesus. That's why people in Jerusalem and elsewhere took note of the apostles that they had been with Jesus. Because they did what Jesus did. No, the key to understanding this paragraph is absolutely crucial. The key to understanding the whole paragraph is in that phrase, because I am going to my Father. Because what he's talking about is a crucial moment in the drama of redemption. In the whole flow of the history of redemption in the Bible, he is talking about a significant, a major, mega shift He's referring, of course, to his going to the cross, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and his exaltation on the throne of heaven. Everything he says in this paragraph hangs on that movement from the, of the Lord from the cross to the throne. And one of the significant shifts in redemptive history that takes place is this. 
that the things that Jesus never did while on earth, the things which Jesus never achieved while he was on earth, the things that Jesus never saw happen while he was with us here, start to happen after that moment of his exaltation to heaven. Now, he's going to be teaching more about this in the rest of these chapters. Uh, this special seminar that he gave them in the upper room before his arrest. Now, what he's saying to them here is that his ascension, his going back to heaven, will inaugurate a new era in the history of God's dealings with the world. That is our era. Because by that point, salvation is achieved. So up until Jesus, salvation is announced. Salvation is promised. Salvation is looked forward to. Jesus comes. And in Jesus, salvation is achieved, accomplished, once and for all. And after his ascension into heaven... The things that Jesus didn't do start to happen. The gospel starts to spread. Gentiles start to believe. Men and women from different countries, different racial groups, different language groups come to faith in the Lord Jesus. It is a new stage. It is a new era in the purposes of God. And that's the hinge of the passage. And he's going to explain this more and more in the, in the verses to come. Because I am going to my Father, greater works than I've done, you will do. And when you look at the story of the book of Acts, for example, the book of Acts purports to be a record of the things that Jesus continued to do from heaven, through the apostles, by the Spirit. And what did he continue to do? Well, he continued to do miracles like he'd done on earth through the apostles. But there were greater things that happened. Day of Pentecost, day number one of the church. What happens on the day of Pentecost? 3,000 men, plus women and children, converted to Jesus. And immediately, you see... They came from Phrygia and Pamphylia and Crete and all these other places. There they were in Jerusalem for the festivities. And Peter gets up and he preaches a sermon. It's the first Christian sermon. And it has the biggest impact. 3,000 plus peoples converted. And as you go through the book of Acts, you find conversion after conversion. After, there, was a point, there was a point early on. The historians reckon there was a point very early on when the Christians were equal in number to Jews in Jerusalem, if not greater, which launched a persecution against them. And they were barred from the city and they spread out of there to Judea and Samaria and further afield to the ends of the earth. And as the book of Acts goes on to demonstrate, the greater works that Jesus does through the apostles are not the signs and wonders that he did. They are the great ingathering of God's people that began after Jesus had accomplished our salvation. 
You see, the greater works than these you will do are because I'm going to the Father. What happens when he goes to the Father is that he lets loose the Holy Spirit. He sends the Spirit into the church and into his people. And the Spirit gets on with doing something far greater than raising the dead for a little while and then them dying again. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he died and had to be buried again. He was put in the tomb twice. I don't know how they did that in the gravestone, but they must have kind of marked it in some way. Lazarus, first time round. Lazarus, second time round. <laughs> Lazarus disturbed or something. But that, let me tell you what's going on right now. Right now in your day and age, and you here in this room, if you are a believer, are a testimony to a greater work than that. A greater work than healing someone. A greater work than even raising the dead. Because what has happened to you? Why are you here? Why is most of Philadelphia tonight not in church? Why is most of America not in church? Why is most of the world not in church worshipping Jesus Christ? Why is it? What makes the difference? Are you better than other people? Are you brighter than other people? I know some of you. I know you're not. So it's not that. What is it? It is the new birth. It is that something has happened to you. You have been born again. The powers of the age to come have broken into your life. You were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were without hope and without God in the world. You were a corpse to God. Nobody could come along to you, as it were, and tell you the gospel and expect you to open your eyes and start smiling and get up off your, the slab where you were laid. You were dead. This pulpit is dead. But the power of God has made you alive. He's opened your eyes and you see it. He's opened your ears and you hear him. He's drawn out your affections and you love him. He has turned your will so that you've reached out to him and surrendered yourself to him. That is a miracle. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that is the first resurrection. The resurrection to eternal life. It begins interiorly. It begins with your spirit being raised from the dead. And it will culminate in your body being raised from the dead and you being reunited with your spirit in a resurrected body. But the resurrection has already begun. It has begun in the new birth and it's begun in you if you're a believer this evening. And that is a greater thing. That is a new creation. And that is a greater thing than anything Jesus did. Any miracle that he performed in his lifetime greater things than these will you do and when someone comes along and they say what your church needs are people's sore backs being healed well have people with sore backs you want your back healed of course you do and we'll pray for you that it will happen and it will happen some people get prayers answered in that respect no one diminish it it does happen God is pleased to act wherever he wills as he wills and so therefore there is absolutely nothing that we're saying can happen if God chooses to do it. But let me say this. Good though all of that is, there is no miracle greater than some 
21st century person sitting in a church worshipping Jesus Christ as God. Nothing greater. It is the last thing in the world that you should be doing. And only God can bring that about because Jesus was going to the Father. And because Jesus went to the Father and the Spirit's unleashed and the Spirit can go where Jesus couldn't go, you see. Jesus was limited, wasn't he? In his flesh, he could only be there in Palestine and he could only go where he could walk. And he could only reach the people he could get to and talk to. But now by the Spirit, he's indwelling all of his people. And by the Spirit, he can be everywhere, anywhere, at all the time. Wherever you are tomorrow morning, he'll be with you. And wherever I am tomorrow morning, he'll be with me. And he'll be with all of God's people right around the world. By the coming of the Spirit, Jesus' power is enlarged in the world. And the Spirit is with the church to secure the church's triumph in the end and to produce the fruit of faith and repentance. And the church, for all its faults, you know, has made an impact on the world. People often criticize Christendom. They refer to Christendom as if it were some kind of dirty word, uh, out of ignorance, of course. They point to the Crusades, usually wrongly describing them as acts of aggression, when in fact they were, they were acts of defense. Did you know that the church was responsible or behind the abolition of slavery in the Roman Empire in the 8th century? And the church was certainly behind the abolition of slavery in Western civilization in the 19th century. The church was responsible by way, by far and away for the end of serfdom and the beginning of political freedoms. And it helped with the emergence of democracy and it founded schools and colleges and universities. It built orphanages and hospitals and pioneered work among AIDS victims worldwide. But above all, the church has seen the gospel triumph as more and more parts of the world are drawn into the kingdom of God. During the period of Christendom, wild, savage tribes on the borders of civilization were brought to faith in Christ. I'm thinking of the Irish. <laughs> and the Germanic tribes. And the Scots. The gospel has been moving out all, all this time, you see. Reaching out to the world. Well, there's a promise of greater, greater works and there's a promise, and here we end, of answered prayer. And the point of this little verse right at the very end is this. Whatever you ask in my name, the point is in my name. I will do. This I will do, Jesus says. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So what is he doing? He's encouraging us to come to God, to depend on God, to receive from God on the basis of our relationship with him. He's saying that he is the mediator of every blessing to his people. 
And he's giving us greater clarity here on how it is that you and I can come to God. We come to God in Jesus' name. His name unlocks the gate of heaven. His name gives us access into the presence of God. His name comes with a promise. And as we come to God in prayer in his name, we come not simply with our shopping list of needs, but we come to adjust our minds to his mind. We come to get our heads into the same zone as his mind and heart are, so that what we ask for in Jesus' name, we receive for Jesus' glory. So on this Sunday evening, as we have spent some time looking at our lovely Savior, as we've been thinking all day long, really, about his glories and his, the wonder of his name, and it's amazing how those things always manage to kind of coalesce without any planning. If you knew me, you would know there was no planning involved, but it often happens that way in the providence of God, and I get really chills and excited when, when I see that happen, because God's done it. It's a God, a God thing. Here tonight we come again and we reflect on the union and communion between the Father and the Son, the indwelling of the Father and the Son. We're reminded again of what it was that Nicholas fought for, whether he punched Arius or not. I'm sure that he did teach him the truth and spoke the truth boldly to him. The Father and the Son are one. They share the same nature. They have done from all eternity. The Father loves to glorify the Son, and the Son loves to glorify the Father. And we glorify the Father when we glorify the name of Jesus. And when at this Christmas time, you and I, uh, in humble faith, acknowledge that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And take advantage of the strength of his name, that when you say his name to your heavenly Father, your Heavenly Father listens up to you. Let's pray. <clears throat> so, Father, we pray this evening in the name of your dear Son, our Savior and Lord, that you would take your word and make it live in our hearts. What a joy it is to be reflecting, as we've done all day today, on the beauty and the bounty that there is in the Lord Jesus. We know that it pleases you for us to think highly of him. And we pray tonight that we might do so to your glory. Amen.